This is Brandon House Live. Whether the issue is law, science, economics, history, family, social issues, education, religion, government, or national security, Brandon brings the issues of the day into clear focus through the lens of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And now, here is your host, Brandon House. All right, welcome. Glad you are with us tonight. We are going to be joined by Kyle Serafin, one of the FBI whistleblowers. And then we're going to be joined by Alan Dershowitz. He's got a brand new book. I've been reading it, and it's an excellent book. It's come out since the October 7th terrorist attack in Israel. War against the Jews. How to end Hamas barbarism excellent book i've been reading it a lot of history and again i hope a lot of you will pick up a copy i'm going to talk to mr alan dershowitz tonight about this brand new and very important book also going to talk with a first time guest tonight commander randy errington will join us uh to talk about some of the things related to the military and what's happening there too much to talk about in this intro as to what we'll be talking about so you just want to stay tuned and then crime is skyrocketing in many communities across America, and certainly even affluent communities are not immune. We are hearing that MS-13 and other Venezuelan gangs are now merging and becoming more powerful and more brazen. Physical attacks on, well, innocent people just going about their day. That happened recently. Well, it's actually happened to a lot of people recently, but it happened to one individual who will join us tonight to talk about this horrific situation and the warning she has for many, many other people uh, to avoid what happened to her and what elected officials need to be doing about it and doing about it now. A problem, sadly, that is going to, I believe, spiral beyond control. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Joining me first is FBI whistleblower Kyle Serafin. He joins us tonight to talk about uh, the reports that maybe some of you have seen. Lawyers for ex-FBI informant charged with lying about Biden say he's been re-arrested. I, I really don't know what all this is about. That's why I had to bring on Kyle Serafin today to help us understand all of these news stories that are swirling. Kyle, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. How you doing, Brennan? Great, great, great. Got a good looking studio there, Kyle. Thank you. Yeah, this is just a spare bedroom. It can turn out anybody could do it. This is the amazing part about the world we're living in right now. We've, we've democratized the capability of broadcast, have we not? Yes, we have, but it looks like you went to a lot of work, but apparently it's just a spare bedroom, as you say. So <laughs> That's what we do. You got a pretty nice house. What we should we should get a tour of the rest if that one room's that nice. But I'm uh, gonna have to put a gimbal. Yeah, we'll do the walking tour that, at some that's point. Exactly right. Okay, so who is this guy, Alexander Smirnov? Uh, what what is all this about? So the the long and, and short of it is, let's get the basic story. So Alexander Smirnov. My original instinct was actually you wrong. I, I just sort of like took it on faith that this guy was a, a counterintelligence source because of the types of information that he was providing and sort of the field that he was in. But apparently he was actually a criminal source. So I've read the indictment now. I, I actually was lazy earlier on. I have to I have to apologize. You to mean my when audience. I was texting you about it a week ago? No, no. I mean, I like like within like the last few days, I thought like, hey, I probably should know what this guy's all about because I'm just going on my suppositions. And that's not a good place to be. So he, he was a criminal source and he was involved in doing what is known as otherwise illegal activity, things that would be prohibited by federal law. 
that you get specific authorization to go do. And he's apparently a credible source going back at least 10 years now with the FBI. And he was providing information and he's been admonished the way that you would normally admonish a source. The way that the FBI source program works is you're either approached or you approach the FBI with certain amounts of information. And then there is a determination on one or both sides that there could be a confidential relationship to share information that would benefit either law enforcement or intelligence operations. And when that happens, the FBI may choose to pay you, but they don't have to. And they uh, they engage in this confidential relationship where you have certain parameters. Number one, you have to say that you don't work for the FBI. That's one of the most important things. You're not allowed to represent yourself as an FBI employee because you don't work for the FBI. The second thing is, is that it has to be a voluntary relationship. In other words, you can leave at any given time. Sometimes there's leverage involved. Obviously, anybody who knows how criminal informants work, there's a lot of dirt bags in that world. And so people may get squeezed into it just a bit. But at the end of the day, they actually do have the ability to say no. The other thing is they can't make any specific promises and they cannot promise that you won't be called to testify. And we know that was actually part of the admonishments because it's rec recognized in the indictment for this guy, um, Alexander Smirnoff. So all that's kind of on the up and up. That's pretty standard. And he provided information that also resulted in criminal prosecutions, which was not what I originally thought. So that means he was giving information that was going directly into real law enforcement operations, not just intelligence and intelligence investigations stand alone. They're very different. We've talked about on this program uh, at short form, but the quick and dirty is a, a law enforcement operation that is criminal in nature is linear. That's the way the FBI sort of works in the minds of most of the American people. There's a crime. Somebody did it. We go find out who it, does, who it was. We get information. We may have witnesses or informants and so on. And then we bring it to prosecution. The other way is this sort of circular pattern of criminal investigations that happen to people like Donald Trump, where they're just trying to find out information and they're looking at threats, which are very vague and they're hard to kind of diagnose what is and what is not above board. And that is more of the sort of intel agency side of the FBI, which is the scarier part for me. The fact that this guy was working on the linear nature, the criminal investigations, actually kind of shores it up. And I reached out to my friends. I said, listen, um, I've run a couple of sources, but not a ton. You guys have run sources. Have you ever heard of sources getting indicted? And they said, yeah, of course. And I went, oh, okay, I, I, I'd never seen that. And they go, but not usually by the FBI and not for the things that they told the FBI. They've always been honest with us. What we indict people for is when we say, hey man, you can do things, but don't do this other illegal stuff. And then they go do the other illegal stuff anyway. They're involved in MS-13, let's say, for example, you, you mentioned in your intro. And then they keep doing MS-13 things. They continue to extort people or they involve themselves in RICO murders. Even if they were providing honest information to the FBI, or if they were giving dishonest information, they're not going to get charged with false statements. They're going to get charged with like a RICO murder, or they're going to get charged with drug trafficking or a Hobbs Act violation where they involve themselves in a robbery across state lines and so on. So those are the things that people get indicted for as federal sources, not for being dishonest. The assumption is when you are an FBI source, when we're dealing with sources, is that they're not just informing us. They're also trying to influence us because people come with all different reasons and backgrounds and they have all different ideas about why they might be able to benefit from a relationship with the FBI. And sometimes it's taking out their adversaries and sometimes it's revenge and sometimes it's just financial. Sometimes it's patriotic and above board and awesome. <laughs> There's all these different reasons why people might do it. But the assumption is, is that if they're giving you a reason, they also probably have an ulterior motive. It's up to the agent to suss it out. And I've never heard of anybody going after somebody for false statements or for creating false documents the way that we see in the Smirnoff. And by the way, that's also mirrored by people who have far more experience than I do, both on the FBI side and on the United States attorney side. So this move by David Weiss, the special prosecutor, uh, it's unusual. And uh, it's actually probably really bad for the FBI. I bet you the FBI is not happy about it because it reduces their credibility with 
their source pool because now they go, well, if I'm giving you information and it turns out to be sort of politically, um, you know, out of fashion, am I going to get indicted for something that you now believe is false, even if I gave you the best information I had at the time? And that's kind of how this stuff looks. So it's a complicated subject, but it's it doesn't look like a win for the FBI. And it's certainly not a win for like law enforcement or this country either, I don't think. So what do you, what do you think this is all about? Are they does he have some information that they don't want out about the Biden family or what does he have? Why would they do this to him? What do you think? I mean, we know the FBI has been politicized. I mean, you're an FBI whistleblower. So what is the political game here, if any? Well, what we're already seeing is that the Democrats are making hay on this, saying, look, the entirety of the Biden impeachment situation and all these sort of allegations against Joe Biden, they all hedged on this one informant. And he's been discredited. Now he's he's disgraced and he's been indicted and he's going to go to jail possibly. And he's facing 25 years, which is not realistic. So all these things, now you've got this. So are they talk. just trying to dirty him up so he has no credibility? That's that's what it looks like to me, because apparently we've forgotten that there's Tony Bobulinski. There's a couple of IRS whistleblowers that have come out. Gary Shapley and um, the other gentleman, uh, Mr. Ziegler, all had really good information. And then on top of all of that, there's tons of financial information and records that the uh, GOP has been able to uncover that are all pretty ugly. There's a lot of things that look false. This is not the only source. It's one source and it was a prominent source. And there was a lot of fighting over whether or not we could get that source document public. But he's not the only thing that anybody could look at and say that there was some problems with the Bidens. Look, the average person just has to say, what is their business? What are the deliverables of that business? And why do they command the price tag they do? And if you don't have a good answer to all those things, which none of us do, it looks like a political influence peddling campaign. So that's the most logical assumption. It looks like a defensive move. And once again, I don't think it's actually the FBI that's really thrilled about this. I think this was a move by DOJ. The DOJ seems significantly more captured than the FBI. I think the FBI is opportunistic, but it doesn't necessarily always engage in just blatant sort of evil, bad policy, particularly when it's bad for the FBI. Like that's the FBI's number one rule protect the FBI. So if they're doing something that is uh, that is not good for the FBI, you can bet to someone else that's pulling the string and it looks like a DOJ move. Wow. All right. Anything else you're watching that you think our audience needs to know about? Because you're, you're covering a lot of stuff with your daily podcast and your, of course, your background of being an FBI whistleblower. What are you hearing? Anything new? So there's one little interesting case you guys might want to look into, and it's coming out of the, the LA Times just reported it this week. And uh, and then there's some other other coverage by ABC and CBS. Essentially, what happened is there's a, a uh, racist prepper group. There's no other really way to easily explain them. They're called the Rise Above Movement, and they're based and out of I'm either reporting on. I reported on them tonight in my worldview report. Perfect. OK, so the fun story about them is, number one, they had the founder and another individual whose both first names is Robert and the second name falls falls away from me at the moment. Uh, but these two gentlemen basically were uh, they were indicted and then they were imprisoned and they are facing basically they faced un, kind of unjust prosecution. They've been appealing based on it through the federal appeals circuit. And they had a district judge rule say, hey, this was an unlawful prosecution because it was specifically selected for people on the political right. Now, as somebody who's conservative and on the political right, I don't want to claim Nazis or racist preppers or anybody along that. I don't need that. But as Americans, we should all sort of ascribe to the higher idea that everybody gets to have an idea. And if it's a bad idea, they're allowed to have it, too. And if they don't specifically engage in federal crime, we shouldn't target them. So this is kind of the uh, the unjust prosecution is where the fairness doctrine has to come in. And this judge, who apparently is a legend in that uh, in that particular district, said, look, this is not fair. You didn't go after people on the political left. You left Antifa alone. You targeted these guys on the right. They were all involved in violence and fighting. And you can't just go after someone who loves Donald Trump or who is on the political right 
because you don't like their ideas. You have to be have this fundamental fairness. Otherwise, it's un-American, and that's not how we operate. So he released these guys from jail um, or out of prison on Wednesday. And then on Thursday night, yesterday night, they went and they, they arrested him again. The FBI got another order coming in from the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit took this emergency stay and they reversed it. So they put a stay on the release. And so they had to go out and rearrest these guys saying that they were a flight risk and they need to stay in jail as they consider the original underlying motions. All of that's incredibly interesting to me because in 2018, I was finally able to leave the counterintelligence program at the Washington field office. And I was assigned to a group called the special operations group, which is just a fancy name for a surveillance team. And my first surveillance mission that left the, the, uh, the little area that we worked in, in DC was to Alaska. I flew to Anchorage, Alaska in June of 2018. So I can't forget that June is always a big month in my family. I've got a, uh, the time I joined the military and uh, one of my daughters was born in June. And I remember, and it was also the the, uh, the month I joined the FBI. So two years in, I fly out to Anchorage, Alaska to watch none other than a subject in the Rise Against movement. And I got a detailed case briefing in the Anchorage field office about what these cases were about. And they were utter BS. They were clearly nonsensical. We listened to them and the agents that were in Anchorage were like, what on earth are we talking about here? These guys are not alleged to have committed federal crimes. They're basically racist preppers who are not trying to push for a race war. They seem like they just think it's coming and they believe in sort of abstaining from physical touching of themselves and only touching their wives. I don't have a big problem with that. They think you should be physically fit, God forbid. They think that you should learn how to do martial arts and handle weapons, and you should prepare yourself for bad things that might be coming, store up food and so on and ammunition. Well, that's almost all of my beliefs. You just add the racist part, and I'm not that. So I don't have a problem with anything they do. And more importantly, neither does federal law. You're allowed to do all this kind of stuff. And so the agents in Alaska, who are pretty fair-minded, if you can imagine, and the agents from my uh, surveillance team, we all got this case brief, and we thought, why on earth are we here? And we followed the guy around for over a week. And then finally, he ended up losing our surveillance team, not because of any efforts that we failed on, but he literally drove off about four hours into the interior of Alaska, jumped on one of those uh, those duck planes that like hangs out in the water, amphibious plane, and it flew off over the top of this lake into, into the wilderness. And we never saw him again. And we all kind of like laughed about it. And he went on like, I don't know, a fishing trip which is what that entire investigation looked like. It was a fishing expedition trying to ensnare people that they labeled politically right and domestic extremists and what they would call racially motivated violent extremists. But I don't think there was any real violation of federal law. And what they ended up getting them on was conspiracy to violate the Anti-Riots Act. Um, and they didn't go after the Antifa who showed up in the exact same gear. So the one-sided prosecution seems really true. You don't have to love Nazis, which I don't. You don't have to love people who are racist, which I don't. But you do have to believe that this, we're going to have a country that operates under rule of law, that fundamental fairness has to be restored. And so people, even if they have bad ideas, are allowed to expose them to the sunlight. And if they don't engage in physical violence or otherwise, or if they're evenly engaged in it, then both sides should at least pay the cost. I think that's people's issue with the January 6th and what happened in all of 2020. When you compare the two, they're apples to oranges with the, the DOJ response. And that is just perfect prima facie evidence of a weaponized DOJ. It picks winners and losers, and the losers have to be on the conservative or the political right side, take your pick, or the far right side. And that's wrong. And we yeah. all sort of know that. Like, we all just know that that's just not the way that we want the system to work. And that's not the way the system used to be until, I would say, it turned drastically under Barack Hussein Obama when they started bringing in, uh, you know, guys from the DOJ. Is that is that not when Mueller came in? Didn't Mueller, was he the FBI director? Did he come in under Obama, Mueller? Uh, he came in and, and stuck around. He was uh, right when 9-11 happened. It was like his first little okay, bit so of Okay, so he time. was under George W. then. 
Yeah, so but he we, continued. He went for a full 14 years, even though he was a, he had a 10 year term and he was extended. So what that tells you was is sort of that neocon sort of that that uh, that stretched out attitude and a lot of it that the Patriot period that that post 9-11 change. My buddies and I who blow the whistle on the FBI, who are constantly looking to see that agency get reined in. We highlight the same exact problems, which is essentially that when the definition of national security changed post 9-11 from uh, you know, the, the original definition, which is that the American Constitution has to survive and that the American system should be based on that. And some people may die to defend it. They changed that to this sort of idea that nobody would die from terrorism on American soil post 9-11. And that mandate is, in fact, tyrannical by its nature. And so that's how you end up with people doing things that were really unlawful and 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 incredibly dangerous to civil liberties by going after Muslims in mosques, even when they hadn't demonstrated any sort of danger. Then they started going after a thing called HVEs, which are homegrown violent extremists. Those are like, imagine first generation Somalis that are living in Minneapolis and they start following ISIS or Al-Shabaab or something like that. And they, they want to engage in foreign terrorism, but they're US based. And then once they've started looking at people domestically, that's when they opened up this umbrella to start scooping up kind of like they did in the 90s, these racially motivated violent extremists, which we know as white supremacists, generally speaking. It could be black supremacists, by the way. It's just not. Um, they just don't have a lot of appetite for that. They go after environmental extremists, but not very much. They go after people that they call anti-abortion violent extremists, if you can imagine. We know them as the pro-life crowd that preys outside of abortion clinics. And then they also started going after things like militia violent extremists and so on and so forth. And then the last one, which is basically exclusively Trump supporters, is known as anti-government, anti-authority violent extremists, which, as I said, the, the FBI thinks of as Trump supporters, but you might know as like the founding fathers of the United States. So they opened up this counterterrorism umbrella and there was a there was a straight line from George W. Bush all the way through, you know, until basically the first Trump term. And a lot of this stuff continued on. And those wheels were set in motion. And there was a lot of inertia behind the counterterrorism program. Apparently, it really started getting domestic in the about like 2010. And that's what we really are kind of hoping to clamp down on. My little group, the Suspendables, that's the T-shirt that I wear right now. You know, we're really looking to see the FBI lose that intelligence mission because they have gone after Americans. And that, to me, is when you've seen weaponized government. That's the government targeting the citizenship, not with a good predicate, but with really bad faith. They're just chasing a budget and they're chasing um, statistical accomplishments, which is the you know, it's the opposite of what we'd expect our Absolutely. American government. Absolutely. And the reason I brought Mueller, because I think he was he came in under George, under George W. So thank you for reminding me of that. But he he I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Mueller the first FBI director to come from the DOJ and not be promoted from within the ranks like Louis Free and others? Well, there, they had some that were previously other parts of DOJ, but he definitely represented a that that political shift. And obviously, you even saw him go and do the Mueller report, and he ended up having a special counsel role. So yeah, you started to see the DOJ capture of FBI when I would say like, I don't know which one is the tail and which one is the dog, but the you know DOJ really wags the FBI when historically they were kind of supposed to be kept kind of siloed off for safety because you really want an investigative arm to be doing the you know the limit of what investigative work looks like and then you want another arm that's going to be the prosecuting arm to be really the limit of fairness um i think miller probably blurred the boundaries between those and really added this sort of dimension that people actually had a, a stake in whether the wins or losses i think he moved the culture into that doj mindset which is why a lot of the tyranny people experienced myself included and and my fellow whistleblowers a lot of the tyranny came from doj it was lee loftus who was the assistant um Attorney General. It was this Lisa Monaco character who kind of runs the DOJ right now underneath uh, Merrick Garland. Those people really change. They, like they have a bigger say, an outsized say in what the FBI does. The FBI is not an autonomous agency that 
works alongside DOJ. It's really subservient. And I think you're correct. I think probably that that Mueller era was really when it changed over and they lost a lot of the independence that is, you know, it's really critical for the FBI to do a job that is honorable and respectable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, OK, before we go, let me ask you this. With with all of the, um, uh, you know, classification now of conservatives, Christians, <coughs> pro-lifers, homeschoolers, moms that go to school board meetings, uh, those who don't want their kids mass mandate, they don't want the COVID shot, they don't want the central bank digital currency, they're patriotic, they like the founding fathers, they stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, they don't want open borders. I mean, everybody that we just mentioned is now, you know, on the radar to be attacked by the FBI, apparently. If the FBI were to knock on your door, how should the average American respond? I mean, because again, the average American isn't used to that. So if the FBI were to knock on your door, what 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 would you suggest as a former FBI agent how they should respond? What would you tell your your brother or sister or relative or friend having been in the job? What would you say? Oh, this is how you should do. This is how you should conduct yourself. What would you say? Well, there's only two answers. If they have a search warrant or an arrest warrant, if they have a process that they're going to be serving from a magistrate judge or from the federal courts, they're going to do that, whether you like it or not. And so you don't have the opportunity and they don't have to show you a warrant, by the way. That's that's a misnomer. That's a TV thing. Show me the warrant or I won't let you in. They're going to come in if they have the warrant. If they claim they have the warrant, they have the warrant. Just assume that that's the case. They'll either break down your door, which is a bummer for you, or you can open the door and they're going to come in. Either way, by the time that they declare FBI warrant and they're banging on the door, assume that that is the case. You're probably not going to get to read it. You probably won't see it until afterwards. You'll deal with the charges. You'll also probably be released that night if you're arrested. Most people are. There's no reason for them to hold on to you. So the, the, the compliance, once they've sort of made that claim, that's really critical. But if somebody knocks on the door, hey, how's it going? I'm, I'm Agent Seraph and I'd love to talk to you. Do you have 15 minutes? Would you be willing to talk to me? Politely decline. It's the hardest thing in the world to do if you are a conservative who is generally respectful of law enforcement, who is a nice person. Maybe you even talk to people that knock on your door and want to proselytize to you. I did that the other day. There's no upside to you speaking to the FBI. And it's very, very hard. Even attorneys screw this up on a regular basis. They will talk because everyone thinks, number one, it's the FBI and they panic and the heart rate goes up and the blood pressure intensifies and everything gets really, uh, you know, everything gets kind of narrow and you have that sympathetic response where you want to just explain this away. I don't want to have this problem. There is nothing wrong with exercising your constitutional liberty to not say anything at all. And they can't stop you. You can be respectful. It's like, I appreciate that. But if you don't have a warrant to serve, uh, I have nothing to say. And they'll build their case or they won't. And that will be the end of it. There's no upside for you speaking to the FBI, basically under any circumstances. The number of people that have weirdly incriminated themselves or have created new investigations for themselves when I knocked on the door and started talking is like all of them. Everybody says something that's weird because it's a weird moment when someone who has either the FBI badge or the FBI credentials or the FBI ray jacket on comes and bangs on your door. That's not a moment that most Americans experience. And I can say it from being on both sides of the coin now because I expect one day maybe the FBI will come knock on my door and I will kindly tell them to turn around and leave unless they have a warrant for me or a warrant to search my premises. Do you ask That's them, it. do you ask them, you know, contact my attorney? Do you say that? Just contact my attorney? Well, if you have an attorney, that's a great idea. Many people don't have an attorney on retainer that's just sitting around. So if you don't have that, you can always ask them, do I need an attorney? And then they'll say no. And you'll say, wonderful. Like, well, when I need one, 
you know, let me know and I'll refer you to them. That may be the only thing. There's no reason to be rude. There's no reason to be impolite. Everybody thinks they're going to be really tough. Um, I went to survival school when I was in the Air Force. So this is kind of just a little aside, but everybody thinks they're going to do one thing until the moment happens. I had this great plan to unleash all the uh, the great dialogue from Ron Burgundy, uh, <laughs> the legend of, of Ron Burgundy, the Anchorman series that went. <laughs> They asked me for questions. I was going to do Ron Burgundy skits. And that lasted right up into the point to the first time I got hit really hard in that open hand in the face. And then suddenly everything just became what they trained you be, which was to just deny and, and do the sort of techniques they get. Everybody has a great plan that they're going to be clever and mean and give, you know, the, the harsh language to the FBI right up until the FBI knocks at your door and it gets real. And so your plan should be very straightforward. Thank you so much. I don't have anything to say. Come back, you know, with a warrant. Or if you have an attorney, sure, you can refer them to that. But there's no upside. And, and, like I said, it is the hardest thing to do. Don't beat yourself up if you speak. A lot of people do, almost everybody. Just try not to be one of those people. You'll be better off if you don't speak. Wow, great advice. Uh, where can people watch your broadcast? They can watch it in the morning at 9.30 Eastern time, or they can watch it on the replay. It's always at rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. So it's just my name. And then if they follow me on uh, True Social, they'll see it tweeted out there. If they follow me on X, they can actually stream it live from their phone on the Twitter app, the X app. Uh, and it's just at Kyle Serafin for all my social media handles. Awesome. Thank you, as always, Kyle, for being with us. Appreciate it. You bet, bud. Have a great weekend. You too. Check out his rumble and his show, folks. You really should, all right? All right, I'm going to go here in just one minute to a first-time guest. Commander Randy is going to join us. Uh, Commander Randy Arrington, A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. He's actually doctor. He's a Ph.D., and he has been warning about uh, wokeness, cultural Marxism in our military, and the destruction of our entire system, our constitutional republic, the Marxist communist revolution that's being attempted in America. But before we go there, let me remind you, we are brought to you by you. And one way that you can support us, and I think support your health at the same time, is through a new sponsor. I went to talk to Melissa yesterday, uh, my wife, for those who don't know. I said, hey, Melissa, she had her back to me. Uh, I asked her a question, and all I heard was, mm -hmm. and she turned around and was swishing something in her mouth. Turns out it was this right here. This is the uh, new me, okay? And what you say, what is that? Well, what this is, it is a, uh, well, basically a product you swish around in your mouth. I'm going to bring it back up here. And it contains, folks, glutathione, glutathione. Glutathione is the body's master antioxidant that impacts nearly every function in your body. You guys want to put up the website there. They can find out all of this there at house1.numi.com. It detoxifies. So it is something that a lot of folks, maybe after they've gotten sick or something, if you know what I mean, to detox. We talk about toxins a lot, don't we? It detoxifies your body's cells. And it recycles itself to increase the effectiveness of other antioxidants like vitamin C. Uh, the, no, it's uh, put the, put a dot where the at is. House1.numi.com. House1. House one, there you go. Good job. House1. Good job, Reagan. House1.numi.com. Uh, by the way, this, hat, this molecule has been studied. There's over 165,000 studies on PubMed. Wow. Vitamin C has apparently just 69,000. This has 165,000 studies. 
And uh, PubMed comprises more than 33 million citations for biomedical literature from Medline, Life Science Journals, and online books, all right? So if you're interested in this, you can get it. Again, here is the bottle for cognitive health, increased energy, immune support, faster recovery. You got the bottle there. You pour it into the top, pour it into the lid. Just open it up, pour it into the lid, squish it around, and there you go. There you go. You can check it out now at house one, house the number one dot numi dot com. Now this, where is my uh, Bella Grace? This I take twice a day. You guys all know about Bella Grace, and this, folks, this is so popular with our audience, and the retention rate is about over eighty percent. Uh, so people that get on it and start experiencing the positive health benefits, like me, and I can name them, and I have here. So I won't take the time to do it again. They keep taking it. That's why I take it twice a day. Melissa takes it twice a day. She's the one that brought it to us. Remember that? Now, you can take it once a day if you want. That's up to you. I prefer to take it twice a day. And, I, and again, it's helped me with a lot of things. My sleeping. Uh, my wife has said, of course, the snoring. We talked to Dr. Mark Miller about that last week. It's helped my skin. My hands are not cracking and bleeding like they have all for, for years and years and years. Not cracking and bleeding this year. Not this winter. Uh, it has helped my indigestion. I'm not asking for Pepsid anymore. I have more energy. And again, uh, I'm only getting up to go to the bathroom once a night, whereas before I was three or four times a night. So there you go. Here's some of the interviews with Mark Miller. We got to get the last one up there. We just did the other night. But all these great interviews on this product. And again, it's making my hair thicker. And by the way, people have asked if I've lost weight. No, I have not lost weight. It appears as though I have apparently in the face. And I think so too when I look in the mirror or when I see myself on TV, I'm like, look a little thinner. And apparently what it is, is the anti-inflammatory. Apparently, you know, it's decreased inflammation in the face. So I know other people have said the same thing. They get on it and people start asking, hey, you've lost weight. Uh, no. But apparently it looks like we have because our face has lost some of the uh, puffiness, the inflammation. So I'm telling you, I like that idea. How about you? The benefits of looking like you've lost weight without having to actually say no to the Oreo cookie. Huh. All right. I'll, I'll go with that. How about you? So anyway, check it out. MelissaHouseBG.com. MelissaHouseBG.com. All right. There you go. All right. Joining me now, joining me now is Dr. and Commander Randy Arrington. Uh, doctor, welcome to the broadcast. First time guest. I hope you'll be back many, many times. Thank you for being with us. You know what, Brennan? It is an honor to be uh, a guest on your show. And after listening to that advertisement, I need that stuff because I get up four times a night and I get tired of it. But thank you for having me, sir. You Thank you. I only get up once now. I was getting up three or four times and now I get up once. I don't know what that's four. about. The doctor says he thinks it has something to do with sleeping deeper and therefore you don't feel like you have to get up and go to the bathroom. But I'll take it, whatever it is. Um, now, you and I met through our mutual friend, Colonel Rob Manis. Tell our audience where we get into your some of your hot topics and book. Tell me your background and don't be humble. I want to know the big stuff you've done. You know, my dad was a Navy guy. He taught me always to be humble and be a protector of people that can't protect themselves. But uh, I went to uh, UCLA and I graduated there and I was in the ROTCA. Went to flight school in uh, Pensacola and then into uh, Texas. Got my wings. I became an attack pilot in the Navy, flying both uh, the S-3 Viking attack jet, attack submarines, and the A-7E Corsair, which is a strike attack jet. Um, during that time, after I finished my 20 years, 
uh, I was allowed to uh, be an interceptor pilot for U.S. Customs, uh, both in New Orleans for about 18 years and then about four or five years in San Diego. And I ended up as a deputy director there in San Diego of Air and Marine Operations um, for about, I guess it was uh, eight years, nine years. I taught at UCLA. I got my PhD in political science. I wrote a, a doctoral dissertation called the Chain Link Theory of the Soviet Collapse, which it was in unique. You have, when you get a PhD, you have to do something that's never been done before. And I was an accident, aircraft accident investigator. So I used aircraft accident investigation theory, the chain link theory, to investigate the collapse of the Soviet Union because I viewed it as a political accident. It wasn't supposed to happen. And so I used that. My doctoral dissertation committee loved it. It was published. And so then I started teaching. I taught first at Tulane because I was still in New Orleans in uh, LSU for one semester. And then for nine years, I taught at UCLA, my alma mater. And then I finally got UCSD uh, and USD to bring me over and let me teach there. Um, I flew for Carl uh, Malone, the basketball uh, player, as his uh, private pilot for a long, long time. And then I uh, lost my medical because I had a heart condition. It's called AFib. I have no idea what that was at the time. I know all about it now. And uh, I ended up as a, uh, working for Southwest Airlines as an instructor pilot for them until I retired, I think it was four years ago, and moved back to the suburbs of New Orleans to be close to my uh, five, four, four children, two of which have subsequently left and gone to Idaho and Nashville to be close to their mom and close to their brother. But I still have two here. And uh, Rob Manis has me on his show every now and then. I am honored to be on that show. Uh, I, I like those types of shows because uh, on those shows, we tell the audience the real truth. We don't use propaganda. We tell the real truth. And I found out that nobody is hated more than he or she who tells the real truth. I'm sure you probably have uh, come across that as well. We tell the truth because that's the right thing to do. Well, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, Dr. Uh, Arrington, we're really happy to have you with us. Now, you have a book, uh, and I looked it up. And here, here it is if you guys want to show it. There it is at Amazon. Uh, Politics in America, Lecture Notes of a, lieutenant, of a Lunatic Professor. Now, why did you put that subtitle? Well, that's uh, the picture you're showing is Volume 1. I also published last month Volume 2, uh, which is even better. It's about twice as long. Uh, because when I tell the real truth, you may have experienced this too, Brennan, when I tell the real truth uh, about politics, the left feels uh, that I'm threatening them, so they reach out and they say, he's nothing, Dr. Arrington is nothing but a lunatic right-wing nut job. And I said, <laughs> you know what, I'll, I'll go with that. If you think I'm a lunatic, I'll stay with that. But if you read the book, you're going you're gonna to be exposed uh, to the real truth. There's no safe spaces None whatsoever. You're going to be exposed to the real truth, so you better be strong of mind to hear the real truth. You know what? There's a lot of people nowadays that do not want to hear the real truth. And I told my students, whatever university I was at, the real truth during my lectures, and we always had like 30 minutes at the end for discussion where they talked to each other, and they knew I would never kick them out like a lot of these liberal Marxist professors will kick the conservatives out of class, give them an F on their paper. I would never do that. I would tell all my students, you can tell us what your opinion is wrong though it might be, and uh, I would use platonic argument to try to back them into a corner and bring them out with the truth. And I would never downgrade anybody for their term paper. All you had to do was good theme, progression, continuity, and grammar, and you give me your, your argument, you'll get an A. Yeah, even though I know your argument's wrong, I know a lot of people believe that. Uh, a lot of people nowadays, Brennan, have been brainwashed 
In my book, I change that. Uh, I give it a little bit more bite, that uh, phenomenon. I call it being mind raped. Mm-hmm. And you got uh, mind raped. And I, I've been in these, these faculty lounges where I've heard these Marxist professors talk about what they want to accomplish. And I was, I was appalled. And I would tell them, look, you guys need to realize that Marxism, communism, socialism, it's all the same, only work in two places. In hell, where they have it, is where it works. And in this faculty lounge where you dream of it. Wow. Wow. Here, here's volume two. Uh, we're currently fighting a revolutionary war, you say, yep. against American Marxists who want to co- collapse our economy, create chaos in our society, and destroy our beloved nation. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people living in the United States do not realize this yet. Uh, you know, I started Worldview Weekends in February of 1993, as the audience knows, the national conference series that we've took to over 300 locations around America. And we studied basically the six dominant worldviews that rule the world. Now, there are more than six, but the six dominant worldviews that rule the world. And of course, of that, you have the Christian worldview, the the secular humanist worldview, the cosmic new age uh, worldview, the cosmic humanist new age worldview. You have postmodernism, you have Islam, and then you have communism or Marxism. So you're so right on, but most Americans don't understand this. I remember when I uh, we did our first seminar on cultural Marxism and the Frankfurt School, who came here from Germany in 1933. Even those in attendance who were very conservative, they were there, over, over a thousand of them, in November of 1997 at that conference in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Some of them asked, why, why, why are you allowing a whole seminar here in this conference on Mar- cultural Marxism? Don't you know the Berlin Wall has fallen? And we were trying to show them that, no, these people have penetrated our society, the long march through the institutions, and they're going after education and media, education and media. Well, obviously, that now has expanded into the military and, and, and so many other issues. But first, talk to me about uh, it going into... Uh, the military, then education, because they targeted first and foremost education and media. You obviously see that in education. But talk to me first about the military. How has this now been moved into Marxism, cultural Marxism, this ideology? How has it manifest itself in our U.S. military? Well, it started with Lenin in 1919 when he sent, he created an entity called the Communist International. Now, if you are a devout Marxist, just like Islam, those two ideologies are very eerily similar, yes. Marxism and, and Islam. And the Marxists and Islamists believe, truly believe, that one day they will rule all the world. So Lenin sent out this Communist International where he sent out communist Marxist spies into every country around the world. Of course, the grand prize in that is who? United States of America. And so uh, I think it was uh, McCarthy was a senator from Wisconsin. He had those hearings where he was warning the people, hey, look, we are being invaded by these, these communists. And they ran him out of town. And he was actually right. Joseph McCarthy was right. And what they think they'll end up doing. And if you think back, uh, if, you're, if you're old enough, I think it's back in 62 when Nikita Khrushchev who was the premier of the Soviet Union at the time, told Kennedy, we will take over your country without a shot being fired. And what they do is they infiltrate, not not only infiltrate our society in the media and in in religion, and uh, the family is very important. They, They separate family members from each other to create chaos and anarchy. 
That's what they try to do. And they believe that they'll truly, truly rule the world one day. Now, in the military, the reason it's in the military is one word, Obama. Barack Obama is himself. In the, in the first book, I call Barack Obama an Islamo-communist. He was trained as a communist by, by uh, Frank Warner, I think was his name, and Frank Marshall Davis. And he was trained um, in um, Islam at the Islam school. So he is both an Islamist and a Marxist. And again, they're eerily similar, similar totalitarian ideologies. So he's the reason that DEI and CRT and cultural Marxism has invaded the military because he wanted that to happen. He, just like Stalin and Lenin, they purge all the people that they think are going to be their uh, competition. So when Obama got there, he was there for eight years, he purged all the high-ranking, mid-ranking officers from all branches of the military that did not conform to the Marxist ideology. And those that stayed and got promoted, uh, Mark Milley is one, the latest, the guy that just left uh, Chairman Joint Chiefs, they went along with Marxism. They said, oh, yes, I'll go along with that. Now, here's the deal. A lot of people will tell you, oh, Mark Milley's not a Marxist. I'll tell you this. If you support Marxist communist public policies, you are a Marxist communist, whether you realize that or not. If you support it, you are one. And they don't understand this, too, that if they are ever successful, and they're getting close, if they're ever successful in turning the United States into a communist nation, those people will be the first to be executed. They are useful idiots to the people that will take over one day, the Obamas and the Susan Rices and people like that. So they, they don't understand this because they've been inappropriately educated. We need to appropriately educate our people, tell them the truth. Whether they accept it or not is up to them. But I tell people all the time, don't let somebody, a professor, tell you what to think, not even this mouth. What I want you to do is do your own research, extensive research all around the issue, and then you come to your own conclusion. You might, might still come to the same wrong conclusion, but at least you did your research to find out what is correct and what's not correct. The problem is, Brennan, we have so much propaganda, and here's things that are very motivational for human beings, fear, bribery, and propaganda. Wow. You know, the Venona Project, I think the Venona Project was started around 1943. And the Venona Project, even the president of the United States, some of them didn't know this project was going on. And they were looking, this is inside the government, and eventually I think it got absorbed by the NSA or one of these groups. But they were looking for communists inside our government, the Venona Project, 1943, and it ran until I think 19. 80 and i think somewhere around 1989 they started declassifying a lot of the venona project uh files and what they were you you probably know about this what they were doing is they were grabbing over the communications from the soviet union to their agents or to their uh you know people they were working with that they had captured here in the u.s and they were grabbing the correspondence that was being sent over and then they were they were breaking it down and they were breaking the code and figuring out what was being said and they found out that indeed the USSR had communist uh, infiltrators in pretty much every branch of the US government. They even found one right in the White House. And so for a long time, uh, one of the presidents for sure didn't know this was going on. And what's so interesting is Joseph McCarthy uh, of, of Wisconsin, the US Senator, he wouldn't have known about any of this. So when he was saying what he was saying in the 1950s, which was what was called the Red Scare, now it's called McCarthyism. He was so right, he was more right than he knew because he would have not been you know, aware of the Venona Project 
And then everything the Venona Project finally revealed when it was uh, declassified in, I think, 1989, showed that what he was saying in the 1950s was true. In fact, I don't, I think I read last, I read, was a lot of the communications from the former Soviet Union to their agents in America and in the U.S. government agencies had, much of it has not even been um, uh, broken down yet. They have not even gone in and figured out what each of these cables or communications is is saying. They haven't even broken them all down. I mean, they have a lot more. They, they just they just stop for whatever reason. So I guess the point I'm making is this is this is not conspiracy to those that think it's conspiracy. This has been a well orchestrated plan for so many many years to penetrate our government. And now of course they're everywhere and they're out and they're proud. They used to try to hide it. Now they tell you, you know, I'm I'm Antifa. I'm Black Lives Matter. We're trained Marxists. And then these people who are who are uh, discipled by them go into the government. And now we have some of them on uh, Zoom calls, and we've released some of those in the last few months. Some of these federal workers on Zoom calls talking about their Marxist ideologies and their cultural Marxism. I mean, this we've come a long way from where you tried to hide to now you're out and proud with your Marxism, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who you mentioned, Mark Milley at the time, said, I want to understand white rage. Yeah, I think our I think our troops ought to understand, you know, cultural Marxism and Marxism. And, and it wasn't because he was opposed to it. He wanted to understand it. Um, boy, we have come a long way, have we not? We, we have. And I, I also teach my students that if you have somebody that thinks they're incredibly intelligent or highly enlightened, and you put them into positions of power and authority over innocent individuals, that is extremely dangerous. And we have that everywhere you look in this current administration, we have that. You know, I would say that right now, uh, Barack Obama's and Joe Biden's puppeteers, uh, they promise to fundamentally change the United States of America. Uh, that this Marxist promise, Brennan, is almost accomplished. I would ask people, can you name any part of our society uh, that is better off now than it was before Barack Obama took over. I don't think you can. You look at the uh, government, nope. If you look at our culture, it's not even close. If you look at justice, law, and order, it's upside down. And you look at our economy, our economy is dying. You know why they're doing that, Brennan? Because they believe in the Cloward and Piven strategy to force a country into socialism, Marxism, communism. You bankrupt the economy. And then the people get really upset and they become ripe for a communist revolution. And again, you have that revolution, you, you make the transformation, and then you murder millions of people to scare the rest of the people into submission. Are, it happens every single time. Are you afraid of that? Are you, I, mean, I, I, bet, you, I bet you also studied the weather underground. And, and, I did. And, and you remember that uh, you, they had a, a guy from Ohio, I think it was, Larry Grothwall, who went in and penetrated them, and then he finally became an informant for the FBI. That's when the FBI actually cared about rooting out communists and communist groups in America. Now they don't care. They aid and abed them. But the Weather Underground guy, the informant Larry Grothwall, who I interviewed, he's on video back, you know, back in the early 70s saying, look, these guys, Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, the others, who, by the way, this is who helped many say launch the political career of Barack Obama out of his living room. These guys said that they were going to have a Marxist revolution in America. They had to, uh, you know, retrain about 100 million Americans, and there might be 20, 25 million 
that aren't going to take the retraining in the deserts of the Southwest and they're going to have to be eliminated. What are we going to do with all of their remains? And remember that? Remember him saying that on that video, Larry Grothwall? Are you are you seriously concerned, uh, Commander, that we could see a revolution in America that sees people like you and me and others that are leaders and speak out murdered? Uh, if you read that book, Politics in America, the lunatic professor is telling you that's what's happening right now. And, you know, Bernadette, Bernadette Dorn and, and Bill Ayers, uh, they were the communists uh, from the beginning, part of that weather underground. And he was an advisor to Barack Obama. He's nothing but a filthy communist. And we used to fight those people tooth and nail. I'm not afraid myself. I'll fight to the last breath in this body. So will Rob Manis. And I'll protect my family, you know, with my AR-15 or whatever I have to do that with. But you've got innocent people in the United States, and I'm sure you know this, Bram. All I want to do is be left alone. Let me take care of myself, my family, my community, my job. Let me just live. And you, you, the government's job is to provide me an umbrella of liberty, freedom, underneath which I can do whatever I want as long as I don't harm somebody else. Give me the freedom that God gave me. And it was, you know, espoused in our, our Constitution and in Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. We have God-given liberty. It's not given to us by any mortal man. I think if you look on uh, Twitter or these news reports, there was a woman, I think from Politico, which is an extremely leftist uh, magazine, that said, no, your rights don't come from God. That makes you a, a, a religious national, Christian nationalist. Your rights come from man. No, they don't. That's why we got rid of the king. Uh, the, the, in England and created the United States of America the way we did. And of course, they, they in Philadelphia, one lady walked up to Ben Franklin and said, what have you given us today, Dr. Franklin? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. That's yeah. the problem. And that's here we are. Um, wow. You know, I, I, I've, I've trained my audience on radio uh, and television, but mostly on radio for years saying, you know, you got to marginalize, characterize, terrorize, and then legalize the terrorizing. Marginalize, characterize, terrorize, and then legalize the terrorizing. And I warned my audience many, many, many years ago that that was coming to pass in America. And look at what's happening. Now the federal government is marginalized, characterized, and now they are terrorizing conservatives, Christians, MAGA people, what they say are nationalist. Uh, now they're domestic terrorists. Wherever you want, pro-lifers, people that you know uh, go to the the Latin mass. Um, and now they're legalizing the terrorizing. We see that what they're doing to Donald Trump. You know they're using the courts to set precedent and legalize terrorizing a family, Donald Trump, before they come after the rest of us and say, "Oh, we're just going to steal your property." Look, they're they are trying. They are making up reasons to steal his property. And they're and they're going to do this eventually and they won't even give a reason. Or if they do, it'll be simply because you're a terrorist and we're gonna use the Patriot Act because we deem you a terrorist, therefore we're seizing your property. They are laying the foundation for seizing all of the private property of everyone that does not tow their line. Anyone that resists, it is going to be a communist revolution where they will literally steal your property. And they'll be able to easily do it once they go to central bank digital currencies. Then they're going to come after your physical property or they'll lock up your money where you can't pay your tax bill, your property tax bill. And then they'll use that as the guys to seize your property. True or false? That's absolutely true. And that comes straight from the communist manifesto 
written by Marx and Engels, and he expounded on that in uh, Das Kapital. And that's, that's a big time problem. Marxists don't want you to have public property or private property. They want it all to be owned by we the people, but we the people never own it. It's always the um, Marxists at the top who are living the life of Riley, if you understand what that means. And the rest of us are slaves to their every whim, and we barely get by on what they give us. They don't allow us to be dormant. We have to work. And if you don't work, here's what the solution to that that Stalin did when he found out that people didn't want to go to work or when they were at their job, they wouldn't produce. He would go to the factory and shoot every fourth man on the factory line. And what did that do? If you go to free stand next to that guy, suddenly they were motivated because their life was on the line and they said, okay, uh, I guess I better work. And, and that's, that's the problem that you face when you have Marxist communism. You, nobody wants to wants to work except the people that like us who do want to work and get great uh, human benefit out of the work ethic. But most people, when you say you don't have to work, they don't want to work. But guess guess what? He makes them work. You know, he had those five year plans that were a big time failure. And right now in the United States, in the White House, you have people that are doing that same thing. They are coming up with five year plans. It's communism. Joe Biden is not running this country, people. Let me say that again. Joe Biden is not running his people. It is the Marxist communists. They're probably over there on K Street, and they are kowtowing down to the corporate funny funds, all the money that comes in from them, and the money laundering. We need term limits. I need to write an article on that. We need term limits at the federal level right now. The, the government was not planned by our founding fathers to be a lifelong, you lay in your hammock, and you collect $174,000 a year for life. That's not the way it was intended. So I believe what we should have in our government, the federal government, is you get four terms in the House, which is eight years, and you get two terms in the Senate, which is 12 years. Then you're done. Then somebody else comes in to do their uh, civil service, public service. That's what it is. It's civil service, public service. It's not a job, a career that you stay for 35, 40, 45 years like McCain and all these other people, Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein, Schumer, McConnell. It was not meant for you to be there and live the life of luxury. You go in, you, you serve your country, you go back to your law practice. Or in the old days, you go back to your farm or your ranch. And it's not happening nowadays. If we had that, I think we would have much better, more efficient government because they know their time is limited. Absolutely. Take a look at this. Here it is. His book on Amazon, Politics in America, Lecture Notes of a Lunatic Professor, tongue-in-cheek there. And there's his uh, YouTube channel, Randy Arrington. PhD. Just put that in. It'll pop right up. Randy Arrington, PhD. You can find all of his different broadcasts right there. Hey, we'll be getting you back, Commander. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your service. Oh, thank you. It was my honor. Glad to have you with us. You'll be back. Thanks again. Check out his book and his YouTube channel, folks. All right. We're going to go to, to uh, Alan Dershowitz here on the brand new book he's written in just one second. But first, we have a first time guest, uh, Ma'am, welcome back to or welcome to the program. You're also a first time guest. Thank you for being with us. Um, Randy was a first time guest. You're a first time guest. Now, I want to get the correct pronunciation of your name. Mazia, is that right? It's Mazia, yes. Mazia. Mazia. Yes. All right. I don't, do you want to give your last name or not? Um, yes. It's okay. Beck Wright. Okay. So, so yes. Now we have a mutual friend that introduced me to to you, and Logan, you have some uh, pictures in there if you want to show those. What happened to you the other night? 
So just about a week ago today, last Friday evening, I was walking down the street in New York City on the Upper East Side. Um, this actual incident happened on 83rd and Park Avenue. So I was walking with my female friend after dinner. The motorbike approached us from approached me from behind. Um, it was we thought it was odd because he was coming between myself and the wall to pass. So we gave him away. We thought so then. Oh, obviously he was um, he was he was one of the gang members. Apparently, uh, he grabbed my bag. I didn't let go. Then he hit me in the back of my head. I started losing consciousness. He uh, waved my bag, dragged me around. This is from the motorbike. He this was happening from the motorbike, very fast motorbike. Um, eventually, he let me, you know, go, which is like slamming on the ground uh, with my face down. So I basically woke up. Um, a minute later, with you know the scratches all over my head, my face, um, my eyebrow was broken. Now it's black and blue and recovering. Um, I feel lucky to be alive. I mean, I was rushed to the hospital. I was hospitalized for you know overnight. Um, luckily and surprisingly, and it's a miracle that I did. You know, I. I survived. I mean, could have been dead on the spot. And and, was, and this is a, 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 a. I don't frequent New York anymore, uh, but I did a few times. Tell me this: that that's that's considered a more affluent side of town, right? New York in New York City. Residential. It's Upper East Side. Very residential. It was early in the evening. It was about eight p.m. It was not late. Uh, we were just walking down the street, minding. It's basically a few blocks from my apartment. This happened in my backyard. I, I live in New York City in 25 years. I've never felt unsafe like I feel today. And, and are not, these gangs? Are these? Is this MS-13? Is this Venezuelan gangs? What's going on here? So that's what police thinks. It's one of the two. It's MS-13 by the patterns of the attack. It's probably one of the gangs. It's MS-13 or the gangs come from Venezuela through the immigration. So it's MS-13 and or Venezuelan gangs and others coming through immigration. And apparently they also network and coordinate. So we don't know because he's not caught yet. We don't know for sure. We can say, but we can tell by the pattern of the assault. Did, did he get your purse? Does he have your ID and know where you live? He, so he didn't. So I, my purse has two um, handles. So one was broken and the other one, I, I held it unconscious. I don't know how. Uh, so he took off. He went right back. So he realized that there were people coming up to us. They run over. Um, so he just took it. He went right back north um, where he came from. Uh, you so know, we're seeing. We're seeing this breakdown. We're seeing this breakdown in society and civility, and we have people in uh, uh, public officials in Michigan and other states warning of international gangs that are going into upper class neighborhoods and targeting upper class neighborhoods. Um, I, I wanted you to come on tonight to give some a, a, a real uh, identification to this problem and with your personal story, because I've been warning my audience that. You guys had better wake up. You better put your head on a swivel and you're not even going to be safe in your own home when you go to bed. We're getting more and more video footage of security cameras and homes where people are having their home and upper scale neighborhoods invaded by gangs in the middle of the night. 
That's exactly. So it's not only night, Brenda. So apparently, police said this happens during the day. It happens to men. It happens to women. Uh, target is Madison and Park Avenue mostly. It's across the broader city, but it's it's mostly on Upper East Side. Like you said, they think they can get more out of um, you know this neighborhood. Uh, but you know, most importantly, Brenda, this my actual incident was not released by the police. They're not releasing most of the crimes that happens every day in New York City. I think they don't want to panic people. The videos you see on social media is not from me or from the police. It's actually from a third party. We don't know who they are. Uh, but what it shows is only the beginning of the attack. It doesn't show the actual injury and how grave and how serious that was. Um, and so the problem here is that people are not aware of. We only talk about around in my surroundings. Of course, we now tell people to please be careful, watch your back. And then more people are saying, oh, you happened to so-and-so, you happened to so So there's more incidents like this than people, police or city releases the information. So that's the problem. Most people walking on the streets are not aware of, they can be a victim at any given minute, basically. Wow. This is how... And we need the we need the police officials, we need the New York officials to be honest with the people, release these stats, release these stories, let people know about it so they can protect each other, watch out for their loved ones themselves, and, and respond accordingly. I don't think we're doing anybody any favor by covering it up. And I'm and I'm guessing you believe that the, the police should be telling people about this and adding it to the to the uh, to the stats and letting the public know. They should let the public know how serious this is so people can be more careful or I feel like this could have been avoided if I had no idea I could be attacked on Upper East Side. So now when we talk about this to our friends, they're like, oh, yeah, and they happened to so-and-so yesterday, day before, outside of the restaurant, uh, on the street, somebody walking up, a man at 2 p.m. So, you know, they went up to him with a gun and said, take your watch. This is two days ago. This happens every day. People are completely unaware, walking on the streets with valuables. I didn't have anything flashy on me. I was in a black outfit, as you can see on the video. I didn't have any watch on me, or my bag was also black. I don't know how he targeted me, but I can tell you nobody's exempt. Everybody, anybody can be next victim. Mm -hmm. It's that. Yes, I feel failed by the mayor, you know, by the city. Uh, it, this happens under their watch every huh. day. Well, and I'm, they should be this. I'm sorry it happened to you, of course. I'm glad you're recovering, uh, at least physically. I'm sure there's emotional recovery yet to go. That's a very, very tough thing. But I'm glad you're speaking up. I'm glad you're not intimidated. I'm glad you're willing to show your face and you give your name and speak up and speak out because people need to be aware. And, and thank you for doing that. And again, I'm so sorry Most this happened to you. Come forward. So let the world know that this is happening every day on the Upper East Side, in my case. Um, but I, I know you have seen all boroughs. So apparently there's 160 incidents in the last two weeks in New York by boroughs. So now you have the calculation. And you got, yeah, that's, quite, that's pretty high numbers. And of course, again, the point is international gangs, MS-13, gangs from Venezuela, growing gang problems, which is going to put a lot of us at risk, including our churches and our synagogues. This is what we've been warning about, and you're putting a face to it. Thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank, Thank you. you Recover fast, please. All right. My next guest, I've had him on my broadcast several times. I always enjoy interviewing him, and he's got a new book out, and I have been reading this book. It's called War Against the Jews, How to End Hamas 
Barbarism. It's by Alan Dershowitz. And folks, I did a 10 one-hour series. I don't know, is it five years ago now? 10 one-hour series on Hamas. I've read the charter publicly to my audience many, many times. I have gone through what their ultimate goal is, which is the murder and eradication of the Jewish people and the Jewish state. Many people in America don't know all there is to know, but most of them don't even know the basics. Now, I did a 10 one-hour series, 10 one-hour TV shows. They're in the archive of my broadcast. But you know what? When I started reading this book, I began to learn stuff. Now, again, I'll reiterate, I did 10 one-hour shows on Hamas. You would think that I wouldn't have too much more to learn about them after 10 one-hour TV shows that involved a lot of PowerPoint and a lot of facts and information. But folks, I learned a lot and I started underlining because let me tell you, if I don't know some of this, I guarantee you a lot of your family and friends don't know. Now, maybe you do know a lot of this because this audience is full of a lot of very intelligent people. But I'm telling you right now, this is a very important book. It's it's not that long, folks. It's just barely over 200 pages. Just barely. It's about 215, 16, 214, 214 pages. I recommend all of you get this book, get a highlighter, begin to mark it up, because this is going to allow you to refute a lot of the lies going around. Just this week alone, Prince William has come out and made what I think are very ignorant statements. Maybe he needs to get a copy of the book by Alan Dershowitz, War Against the Jews. He joins us now. Mr. Dershowitz, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for pointing out the abysmal ignorance that so many people have. So many of my students at Harvard University, at places of great learning, they have no idea what the history of Israel is, the history of Hamas, the history of these efforts to destroy the nation state of the Jewish people. And and by the way, if Hamas wins in Gaza, it's coming to a theater near you. We already see that they have tried to export their terrorism to European countries. It will come to America, too, because their ultimate goal is not only to destroy anything Jewish, but to destroy anything Christian as well. Uh, their goal is a caliphate uh, among only uh, Muslims. And, you know, once they get rid of everybody but the Muslims, uh, the, the Shiites will go after the Sunnis. Um, uh, these are uh, these are historically uh, uh, warring warring groups that are never satisfied unless they have a total and complete victory. Now, uh, a friend of mine recently was on a show and he said, "What would it be different if, God forbid, Israel were to disappear? Uh, you know, uh, Iran calls Israel a one-bomb state. If Iran were to drop a nuclear bomb in Israel and every single Jew were to leave Israel and and move to places around the world, what would it change?" It would still be a tremendous animosity among Arabs. It would still mean that gay people couldn't live their lives freely, that uh, transgender people couldn't live their lives freely, uh, that Christian people couldn't live their lives freely. Israel is an excuse, but it's not the cause of the crises in the Middle East. In fact, it's a destabilizing force. In fact, it's a stabilizing force in the Middle East itself. It helps bring people together, as the Abraham Accords did, bringing countries together. So, yeah, thank you for asking people to read my book. I hope they will. You know, Hillary Clinton, you know, who is um, uh, very, very liberal and left, has recently said that uh, when she was in Europe, 
that many of the people who are marching against Israel have no idea what the history is and what the story is. And uh, she's absolutely right about that. And yeah. so are you. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, what I find so interesting, Mr. Dershowitz, is that you and I may uh, disagree on many issues politically or socially, uh, but there are some issues that are increasingly bringing folks like Brandon House and Alan Dershowitz to the table together. One of them has been free speech, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the cancel culture. And you and I you know, have talked about that. You've been a guest on this program with me. You've been a guest with me and Mike Lindell on this issue. Uh, you've even represented Mike Lindell in some of these cases. Uh, and here's another one. Here's another issue that finds us together again saying the same things. And that is... Uh, I'm a, I am, you know, people say to me, and I get ridiculed online, that Brandon House is a Zionist. He's a Zionist. And I have to correct yeah. them. And I say, no, I'm actually a Christian Zionist because I believe in the historical and the biblical right of the land for the Jewish people. But that is used as a pejorative against, you know, myself. That's fine. But that's, that's no, no. now the way, way it's being played. So Christians, uh, big C Christians, little C Christians, Many of them had better figure this out real fast because these groups that you're talking about, which are penetrating America, they see us all as either Jewish or Christian to be eliminated. Would you agree? Look, I, I am a small C Christian when it comes to Israel as well. Um, I, I know the New Testament. I've taught it. I admire it enormously. And uh, as Bill Clinton told Yasser Arafat, when Yasser Arafat said there was no Jewish temple, um, in what is now Israel, uh, Bill Clinton said, you're disputing my religion. Where did Jesus go to turn over the moneylenders' tables? Where, did, where was he buried? Uh, where was he resurrected? The whole basis of Christianity is the existence of a Jewish state uh, in uh, what is now Israel, Eretz Yisrael, which the Romans pejoratively called Palestine. Right. Uh, Without uh, Judaism, as the Pope has said as well, uh, there is no Christianity. Uh, the Judaism is the is the father, uh, and um, uh, 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 both uh, of both Christianity and Islam. And um, tragically, Islam, uh, many in Islam, not all. There are there are great Muslims, great members of the Islamic faith who support Israel, who support uh, uh, peace between the countries. But too many of them uh, have hatred, and uh, and we have to distinguish those well, groups. Well, isn't that interesting? Because you do have some of the Arabs that are very much interested in working with Israel. I think we have something going on over in the Middle East where they're wanting some of the technology for a new big city in in, in the United Arab Emirates area, if I remember correctly. And no, definitely true. And look, the only place where Christianity is growing in the Middle East is in Israel. Mm. Uh, Christian is increasing in Israel. There are more Christian churches. Uh, there are more places in Bethlehem to worship. Uh, and, and the nation state of the Jewish people welcomes uh, um, Christianity and welcomes Christians. When I go to Israel, I always go to the Church of the Sepulchre and to the various places. Um, I went to the place where Jesus was baptized. And I love looking at Christian uh, holy sites as well as Jewish holy sites. And, 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 but in Lebanon, Christians have been basically expelled. In Gaza, Christians have been murdered. Uh, in Egypt, uh, Christians uh, are, are not as welcome as they uh, used to be. In Saudi Arabia, they, they just hardly exist at all. And so, uh, you know, Christianity has been an important part of the growth of Israel since 1948 because 
there's always been a significant number of Christians. And by the way, with the uh, emigration to Israel of many Russians from the former Soviet Union, the number of Christians, Eastern European Christians, have increased as well. Oh, wow. Let's get into the some of the facts that people need to know about the real situation on the ground there with Gaza and Israel. You write, the hope was that the Palestinians would use the end of the Israeli occupation to build Gaza's economy and prepare it for political independence. So thousands of Jews got up and left their homes and property and businesses and schools and hospitals and, and uh, greeneries and greenhouses. They left and they left it all behind to, to allow for what would be their Palestinian state. So the Jews exit and you write, you write that along with the West Bank, as part of a Palestinian state, private donors stepped in to buy the Israeli greenhouses that have been left behind and hand them over to the Palestinian Authority. James Wolfelson, the former head of the World Bank, contributed a half a million of his own money to the purchase. And yet you go on in the next paragraph to say, and this was happening in uh, about the spring or so of 2005, within weeks of this, the, and while this was going on, the rockets continued throughout the months that followed though Israel was no longer occupying Gaza. And, and you, as you keep laying out, it's just no matter what they did, Israel just keeps getting the rockets. Right, and we now know they started building the tunnels, the terror tunnels as well, that almost all of the money that came to Gaza was diverted away from the people, away from medical care, away from educational care, into the building of military facilities. You mentioned that thousands of Israelis left. Actually, hundreds of them had to be dug up because they took with them their dead. Wow. Uh, they the, the, the cemeteries and they reburied these people. So there was not a dead or living Israeli in Gaza. There was no occupation. It could have become Singapore and the Mediterranean. It could have been the most beautiful tourist attraction. I've been to Gaza. I've eaten in Khan Yunus. I've eaten in Gaza City. I've met with people there. It could be the most beautiful beach enclave with fantastic fishing and access, uh, not a very long trip to Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. It could have been magnificent, but Hamas took over from the Palestinian Authority, murdered, murdered many of the people in the Palestinian Authority, threw them off roofs, shot them, and took over and turned it into what people call an open-air uh, prison. That's not an Israeli action. That's the Hamas's action. Israel was perfectly willing to live in peace with Gaza. In fact, until the day before October 7th, hundreds, sometimes thousands of Gazans were coming across the border and working in Israel, working in people's homes, taking care of their gardens, taking care of building and things of that. We now know that many of them were spies for Hamas. Many of them abused the welcome they got from Israelis, because a lot of the Israelis who welcomed them were the people who were killed, were peaceniks, were people who favored the two-state solution, people who favored the end of the occupation, people who were supportive of the Palestinian cause. Many of them contributed to Palestinian charities, and yet the people who came to work in their home and take care of their children gave the Hamas the information necessary then to slaughter their children, to rape the women, to behead people, and, and to kill them. And so uh, you know, it, it needn't have been this way, but it is not Israel's fault. And the young people don't know that. They don't understand the Palestinians were offered a state. 1937, 1938, 1947, 1948, 1967, 1994, 2005, 2007, 
and they turned it down every single time. The Kurds, on the other hand, have never been offered a state. When's the last time you saw a college student demonstrating for state Kurds? It's it's absolutely preposterous. Wow. You mentioned in, in your book here that the Middle East quarter, which consisted of the European Union and the United States and Russia, and they warned the Palestinian government, this new government that they're forming here, and the, the Jews, they say, are picking up and leaving. They're taking their dead with them. They're leaving their businesses behind. They're leaving these buildings behind, the infrastructure behind, and they leave. And here in January 2006, you have great concern for the fact that Hamas has this victory in the Palestinian legislative elections of January 2006. And the Middle East quarter uh, warned them, look, you guys have got to be committed to nonviolence, the acceptance of Israel. And if you agree to these kind of obligations, then you'll keep getting aid. Hamas would not agree. Look at these Jews get up and they leave. And, and here are these countries saying, we're going to help you. We're going to get you up on your feet. But you got to be committed to nonviolence, the recognition of the Jewish state, and keep these agreements and obligations. And what did Hamas say, Mr. Dershowitz? Well, they rejected all of that. You know, I was in Israel with Jimmy Carter at the time. We were both at the Herzliya conference on the day of the election. He invited me to come and watch the election with him in Ramallah. I had already made an agreement to watch it in East Jerusalem. And, and he predicted, of course, that the Palestinian Authority would win. I predicted to him that I thought Hamas would win. Uh, and he said, no, we never would have had elections if we thought Hamas could win. And Hamas won. And uh, the people who voted for Hamas were voting for the destruction of Israel, because as you say, and as you pointed out in your uh, wonderful 10-part series, all you have to do is look at the charter, uh, whether it be the old charter, the revised charter, anything. Hamas stands for the proposition that there is no room in the Middle East for a Jewish state. You know, when the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem was asked in 1937-1938 uh, by the Peel Commission whether he wanted a Palestinian state, he said, absolutely not. There's no such thing as the Palestinian people. He said, we are just part of the greater Arab Republic. We just want there not to be a Jewish state, not to be a Jewish presence. So right from the beginning, the claim of Palestinian statehood has been much more of a claim against Jewish statehood than it has been for Palestinian statehood. You know, a state for Israel is not colonialism. It's a national liberation movement. Uh, the Jews didn't come on behalf of the Russians. They hated them, the Ukrainians, the Latvians, the Lith Lithuanians, even the British. Remember, Israel fought against two colonial regimes, the Ottoman Empire before the First World War, and then um, Britain after the First World War. Israel is the most anti-colonialist group of self-determination individuals in the modern history of anti-colonialism. And yet you go on college campuses and they call Israel a settler colonial state. Nothing could be further from the truth. And they call it an apartheid state as though there's some kind of racist state. And in my 10 part series, 10 one hour series on Hamas a few years ago, I showed the pictures and the screenshots of then U.S. Senator Rudy Boschowitz, who I think his family made their fortune in, in lumber, in, in Minnesota lumber, and then they, they later changed the name of the company. He was a U.S. Senator, as you know. The, he raised a lot of money uh, with, within a few hours or a few days with a lot of phone calls from a lot of uh, Jewish Americans to go to Ethiopia and to take the seats out of 747s and touch down in Ethiopia and scoop up black Ethiopian Jews who were being persecuted and whose lives were at risk. And this was during the George H. administration, as you know. Yeah. And this has gone on more than once. 
I mean, th these things have happened over many years where they go in there and they scoop up the black Ethiopian Jews and they bring them to Israel and they teach them a trade and the language and a skill. Now, it's been very tough on some of the older black Ethiopian, the parents, the been very tough on some of the parents and grandparents. That's a big cultural change and a taken out of your country and start over. Very difficult, sure. I'll be honest. But the studies I saw, Mr. Dershowitz, show that those children that were, 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 were little bitty kids when they got there or were born after they got there, those kids have thrived. And one of my reporters, I don't know if you know this, but I have a reporter, I have a Jewish man that is a uh, licensed reporter in Israel. He's a dear friend of mine. And after the October 7th event, I made him a full-time reporter. I pay him and I get reports here on this broadcast and on my 67 Christian stations, I get reports from him about every other day. And he says, when I told this story to him last week on the air, which he knew, he said, you're right, Brandon. And when I'm leading a tour, I will say, oh, guys on the bus, you see that? That is a black Ethiopian Jew. Let me tell you how they came to, America, came to Israel with the help of Americans. But these college kids want to call Israel a, a racist apartheid state? No. Look, I was there when they landed at the airport. I was part of the legal team that helped get the Ethiopian Jews out. I represented Ethiopian Jews in front of the Israeli Supreme Court. I've eaten in their homes, in their restaurants. Wow. Uh, Miss Israel was an Ethiopian Jew. Uh, some of the most uh, important young people uh, in the military are Ethiopian Jews. You're absolutely right. It was hard, like it was hard when my grandparents came over from Poland without knowing a word of English, without a nickel in their pocket. Um, but, you know, their children and grandchildren thrived. I remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg once asked me a question. She said, what's the difference between a Jewish woman who was a bookkeeper uh, in a clothing in the clothing industry on the Lower East Side and a Supreme Court justice? And her answer was one generation. Hmm. And I said to her, what's the difference between a woman who's a bookkeeper on the Lower East Side and a law professor? And we learned that our parents had worked in the same area, the same kind of garment district area, and their children, of course, became very successful. And that's the American dream, and that's the Israeli dream. And it's been working for most people. Now, it's difficult for elderly uh, people who come without any knowledge of the language or, in some instances, without any knowledge of modern. When I first met the first Ethiopian Jews that I met, didn't even understand what uh, modern plumbing was like. Uh, they had never been in a multi-story apartment uh, building. Um, they had problems with, uh, they didn't know anything about computers. Now some of them are computer whizzes. Uh, look, the story of Israel is a miracle, an absolute miracle. Between 1948 and 19, and, and today, uh, Israel has contributed so much to the world in technology, agrarian, um, uh, intellectual, winning, winning Nobel and scientific prizes, artificial intelligence. Um, it's done so much for the world. Imagine how much more it could do if the biblical prophecy of turning your swords into plowshares uh, could have been accomplished in Israel. Instead, Israel has had to turn its plowshares into, you know, atomic and nuclear weapons to protect itself. But how much better off the world would be if Israel could just be left alone? Let them live in peace and, and, and the time will come when the Palestinian people can live in peace with them. Already there's a city called Ramallah, 
which is one of the most beautiful cities in the Middle East. It's on the West Bank. I go there when I go to Israel. I've met with the prime ministers and leaders of the Palestinian Authority. It's it's a Palestinian state. There are no Israelis there, no policemen, no soldiers. They live their own lives. They pay their taxes. They take care of their own trash and they protect their own children. And that could be the model for how Palestinians could live alongside Israel. They don't have to have guns. They don't have to have tanks. They don't have to have an air force as long as they can take care of themselves. And I think one can extend the Ramallah experience to other cities if the cities would stop being center places like Janine for terrorism or like Gaza City, obviously. Mm. Uh, just a few more minutes here with you before we let you go. Uh, folks, the book is called War Against the Jews. Guys, why don't you put it on the screen and show it? Uh, I've marked it up. I've been reading it. It's like 214 pages. Folks, you should get a copy because there's things here you need to know. For instance, um, Prince William comes out and says this week that you know this needs to stop as though somehow the Jews started it. They didn't start it. But here's the point I would make also to Prince William and to others, and that is, the, the Hamas terrorizes their own people. Uh, if they'll terrorize their own people, what will they do to folks that they see outside of their people group? And you write, in January of 2006, two main Palestinian factions, Fatah, which controlled the executive, and Hamas, which controlled the legislature, began fighting openly with each other. After extensive negotiations, the two parties agreed to a unity government, which was formed in March of 2007. But, the rockets continued to rain down there in Israel, reaching a record of 257 in May and in June of 2007. Hamas launched a military coup against the Fatah executive, driving its leaders out of Gaza and killing more than 100 of their fellow Palestinians, including many civilians. And so you had a, a coup d'etat, as you write, by Hamas. So again, I, 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 for all of those that are talking about, you know, Palestine and pa Palestinians, I, I never hear them talk about how, Ma how Hamas treats their own people and they had a coup d'etat and killed their own people to take full control. Yeah, and 70% and, and of the people of Gaza support Hamas and support what they did on October 7th. It's interesting, 80% of, of Palestinians on the West Bank support it. Why do more Palestinians on the West Bank than in the Gaza support Hamas's atrocities? Because on the West Bank, they can just laugh and at every Jew being killed because they haven't been killed in return. Whereas in the Gaza, the civilians of Gaza have paid a heavy price. By the way, a lot of those people are not real civilians. They are people who help Hamas. They have people who let their homes be used. They're people who allow tunnels to be built underneath their homes. And se several, a lot, a number of the people who have been killed by rockets have been killed by Gazan rockets coming from Islamic Jihad or from Hamas, because about, I don't know, 20% of the rockets sent to kill Israelis misfire and end up killing Gazans. So it's a very complicated situation. When you hear the figure 30 million people have been killed. First of all, Hamas doesn't even distinguish between who's a terrorist and who's uh, a civilian. Even they don't try to do that. They just say that a percentage of them are women and, and children, as if a woman and an 18-year-old can't be a terrorist. Hamas defines a child as anyone under 19. And we know that they train 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So a lot of these so-called children are terrorists. And a lot of the women are terrorists. Yeah. Now, there are civilians. There are 
three-year-olds and four-year-olds and five-year-olds, and every one of them who dies is a tragedy, but every one of those deaths is attributable to Hamas because they use these little children as human shields. They've developed what's called the dead baby strategy. Put the babies in the way, put young people in the way. If they are killed, and you know they will be, parade their bodies in front of CNN. CNN will only show their bodies without giving the reason why they're dead, namely that Hamas has used them as human shields. Hmm. Well, we know, we know Muslim Brotherhood was founded by Abana in 1928. We know that about 1987, they formed Hamas. Now they have 1994 CARE, Council on American Islamic Relations, to do their, you know, their bidding. Uh, but most Americans are unaware that Hamas is Muslim Brotherhood, or they are aware that the vast majority of the mosques in America are run by Muslim Brotherhood, which means Hamas. And what do you think many of them are being taught in those mosques by, about the Jewish people or the people of the book? Well, we know because some of the people that I interview for years, including one again last week, they know Arabic and they go in undercover and sometimes they grow the Sharia beard and they go in and they find out what is being taught in, in mosques in major American cities about the Jews and the Christians. So I am warning my audience that what happened there October 7th, well, I, it can happen here. And I sadly will not be shocked if it ha doesn't happen in America. Closing thought. Yeah, let's remember that in the 1970s, these same extremist radicals that really were old fashioned communists, radicals, socialists, anti Judeo Christian tradition, they engaged in violence against the United States um, uh, in, in, in blowing up um, uh, universities, blowing up uh, recruitment centers. And, and, I, and I believe if the Hamas were to come to an American college campus today, there would be people on that campus who would support Hamas and would join them in their terrorism. We have a fifth column uh, within American universities and American areas of the country that would rise up with Hamas against America if Hamas ever tried to uh, destroy America as they are trying to destroy Israel today. Yeah, all you got to go and do is, is read the Weather Underground's uh, manifesto from 7374 Prairie Fire, and they're singing the praises of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and, and Mao and these groups. So I think you're 100% right. I highly recommend it. Can we show it again, guys, please? War Against the Jews, How to End Hamas Barbarism. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, number He's a New York Times bestselling author, of course, numerous times. It's 214 pages, folks. You can make it through in probably two sittings. You're going to want to mark it up because there's a lot of history here. You are not being told. And folks, a lot of your family and friends are going to be buying the lies and the propaganda. Here's a chance to get the truth and give it to them. And the truth hopefully will set them free on this topic. Thank you, Mr. Dershowitz, for being with us. Hey, you're a great interviewer, and I appreciate it very much. And I just want to thank um, primarily Christian Americans who have been so supportive of Israel. They have really been the backbone of the pro-Israel uh, movement in America. And I hope that uh, continues. Working together um, is, is really a, a pleasure and an honor. And I work so closely with so many of my Christian friends. And uh, it, it's something that uh, should continue. And I hope will. And you're part of it. And I thank you very well, much. Well, you're very kind. I, it's an honor. And we'll, you're welcome here anytime. And I thank you for writing the book. We're using your well, credibility to, with all your experiences and life story to write a book like this and to get it out so fast after October 7th. Thank you for doing that. And we're honored to work with you and all of our Jewish friends around the world. And um, you're welcome here anytime, sir. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Alan Dershowitz checking in. Check out his book, War against the Jews, how to end Hamas 
Barbarism. Check it out, folks. It's on Amazon. And, you know, it's also, I, look, I see here on, uh, on Amazon, it's also an audio book. So there you go. It's also an audio book that you can get as well. Okay? So check it out. Another great broadcast. Thank you guys for watching and for making it possible. Remember, again, we appreciate all your support. One way you can support us is by simply going to www.foundation.com. Our foundation exists to help us push out programming like this, to help people understand the times on vital issues like what's happening to Israel, the real worldview of Hamas, and how we should think about it and respond. So thank you for your support. www.foundation.com. So next time I'm Brandon House, may God save America. Take care.